Dear congregation, let's turn in God's holy word to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We'll read the entire chapter. I'd love to read all the way through chapter 12. Our sermon will encapsulate or try to highlight uh, lessons we can learn from uh, the apocalyptic literature of Daniel here in Daniel 7 through 12 in way of introduction to uh, the second half of the book of Daniel. But we'll limit ourselves to Daniel 7. It would be helpful to leave your Bibles out too as we go through the sermon. Let us hear God's holy word, Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed, and he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, and with eagles, and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, and it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. And the books were open. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, to all, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. I, 
Daniel was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to see of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came And a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. And he shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand, for a time and times and a half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed but I kept the matter in my heart. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word and add his blessing to the exposition of it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if I were to ask you to define the word apocalypse, what would you think of And how would you define it? Maybe you would think of great nuclear wars that would alter the earth to make it so man can no longer live upon it. Maybe you would think of a great asteroid hitting the earth, wiping out the existence of life. Or volcanoes or fire erupting from the core of the earth to destroy the earth. Or maybe a disease of some sort that would kill everyone. You would define it that way because that's how you see it defined in the world all around us. You see it defined as an event involving great destruction that would be awesome and catastrophic in scale. 
And why do people have this idea? Why do people think that this is what apocalypse means? Well, very interestingly, from the prophecy of the book of Revelation, and a great fascination with this book, and especially the visions of Armageddon that John received. This has influenced literature and even movies and media to focus on a complete and final destruction of this world. I find it very interesting, don't you, that if I read one time that ten scientists were asked, how will the earth end? Every one of them had a different ex- explanation as to how the earth in this world would end. Not a one of them said, we will all keep evolving and things will keep getting better. They all had an expl- explanation of how they thought the earth, the world, would end. It's quite sad commentary in my mind when they answer in such a way without a knowledge of who God is. What if I were to tell you that that's not actually what apocalypse means at all anyway? The word apocalypse in Greek simply means revelation. That's why the book of Revelation as we know it in Greek is apocalypse. It's to unveil something that was formerly veiled. It's like to pull the curtain aside and to be able to see what's behind it. That's what apocalypse means. And usually it's referring to divine revelation that will contain symbolism, pictures, metaphors, as they are received through dreams and visions. And they show us certain things regarding the future. So that we can see it, that we can hear it, and we can even smell it. As we read Daniel chapter 7, you can see those beasts. You can almost hear that ferocious beast, that fourth beast, growling, snarling at the saints of God. You can almost smell the fire that would come from them. You see, that's apocalyptic literature where God is revealing to us His sovereign control over all history, even every single event in history. And it takes historical time frames and looks at them from a different perspective. And the aim is this. It's not to discourage the people of God, but rather to encourage the people of God as they go through challenging times and challenging circumstances is to tell us that things aren't really the way they seem. Because there is a God in heaven who's in control of all things, working all things to His glorious end and purpose to save and deliver His people. That's really what Daniel's apocalypse and the apocalypse of Revelation, the book of Revelation, teaches us. And I want to look at an introduction of Daniel's apocalypse here and just to set 
the frame before we plunge into these chapters and to think about the overarching message that comes through apocalyptic literature and especially Daniel. And we're going to be looking at this in summary from these chapter Daniel chapter 7 through 12. Obviously, I can't go into detail about what everything means, and I don't know what everything means, as a matter of fact. And I'll say that right up front. But what we need to focus on, as Daniel says that he saw all of these things in his mind in Daniel 7 verse 1, and he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. This is, this is what it looked like. This is what I saw. And this is what was interpreted through the angels that God gave me to minister this to me. And so we want to guard ourselves and not go beyond Scripture in these things either. But first, today, the first message that I want us to, to think about when we think about Daniel and his apocalyptic literature is that we are called not to put our confidence in men. If you notice Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions. Now, if we go back and we recall what has happened in Daniel, historically, Daniel was taken into Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and, and remember that statue of of the four different kingdoms that were in the statue. And there, here in Daniel chapter 7, we find four other kingdoms that are these kingdoms that are flowing out of Daniel's history and also his apocalyptic literature. And so there's a great connection here. But now we find ourselves many years later, probably even 50 plus years later, in Daniel's life under the reign of Belshazzar. Remember, Daniel was older by that time, at least 40 years later, that Daniel now is is in his 60s or so, and Daniel now has this dream in the first year of Belshazzar. Remember, Belshazzar was this partying king. He partied it up and lived it up. And, and, and this follows the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar and, and really how, how there was quite a bit of peace and prosperity even in Daniel's influence in Babylon during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. But now what a great transition to the reign of Belshazzar. And what it reminds Daniel of is not to put your confidence in princes and kings, but to put, keep your confidence in God, the God of heaven who gave you the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Daniel 7 is setting the stage for the rest of Daniel here as he gives these dreams, and he writes down the main facts. In Daniel 7, verse 2, we read that, Behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And what Daniel is seeing here is that great sea, which is an emblem of confusion, which is an emblem of great mysteries and unrest and even separation, he sees this great sea in his vision, and there's four, the four winds of heaven are blowing upon it, stirring it up, causing it to be agitated, and there's four beasts coming out of it. That's what he sees. 
And this is following, now remember, Daniel in Babylon. And he's, he's had wonderful years of success under Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and now, and now Belshazzar is on the throne. There's a lot of unrest, and there's even more unrest to come. Daniel, don't put your hope in man, in the kings of this earth. Because all I need to do is shake up the sea a little bit. And look what will happen. It's like that illustration about um, a mason jar where you take a hundred black ants, like those ants like you find crawling around on your food at picnics, and then you take another hundred Red ants, poisonous ants, ants that could really do great damage. And you put all 200 of these ants in the jar. And, and in this mason jar, they have plenty of food and they can, they can all live together. It's a stable environment. But now you just take that jar and you shake it a little bit. And all of a sudden, the black ants look at the red ants and the fiery ants, and and the fiery ants look at the black ants, and they start to devour each other. They're at war with each other because the jar was shook a little bit. You see, the ultimate question is not whether you're a red ant or a black ant, but the ultimate question is this who shook the jar? What was the purpose of that shaking the jar? Well, in Daniel 7, you look at the sea. All these beasts could live in harmony in the sea. It's a big place. It's calm, plenty of food, plenty of territory. But God shakes up that sea in his sovereign control. And these four beasts come out of the sea. With all their depravity, their self-centeredness, their wickedness, and rebellion against God. One thing is for sure, God is in sovereign control of this sea-shaking. I'm not saying He's responsible for the actions that flow out of it, but He's responsible for shaking it up. As is this what happens throughout life. I think of our day and age when we have this shaking of heat waves in the west and all the fires that are popping up. We have tornadoes and we have hurricanes and we have floods. And, and you just have to look at the news, whether you're in Europe or Canada or in the U.S. or wherever you are, you see all of these natural disasters. And God is shaking up the sea, as it were, shaking up the world. And what do we do? We look at each other. Oh, we blame it on those who are using too much carbon and putting too much carbon into the air. And we have climate change and, and Mother Earth is angry with us. Instead of looking at who is shaking the world. Who is shaking the world with pandemics like COVID-19? Instead of asking the hard questions, why and for what purpose is God shaking this world with the pandemic and all that flows out of it, we start to look at each other and blame each other and, and have division and all kinds of chaos. 
Why is God shaking the world? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, the beasts are to come out of this sea. After this, he saw in his night visions those four beasts. He saw, um, I don't want to go into them all today because we're going to look at this next week, but he saw a lion, which represents, I'll just say right now, is the Babylonian Empire. He saw a bear, which represents the Median Persian Empire. He saw uh, that leopard, the wings, that speedy Grecian Empire, Empire of Greece. And then he saw that ferocious Ferocious beast. Terrible, terrifying beast. The Roman Empire. And and that which flows out of it even to history today. And what he's telling Daniel is all of these beasts must come about because the end must come through, through this history. But what you need to remember, Daniel and Israel, is not to put your hope in man, but in God. And we need to learn that too. We need to learn that very thing. We need to learn that, that it's not up to us and human wisdom and human inventions that give salvation to men. We are depraved. We are sinful. We don't deserve any of God's blessings. We can't put our hope in a type of an ecclesiastical salvation, which means putting your hope in the church ordinances by being baptized and by going through all the Sunday school and catechism and confession of faith class and and partaking of the Lord's Supper. All blessings indeed. But that's not where our hope is. It's our, our hope is in the one who they all point to, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't put our hope in politics for salvation. Political power does not equate spiritual power. I think we we confuse that today. We think that if if we would have all Christians in government, then we would have a utopia and and a perfect society. It's not even it's not even realistic. Politics throughout the ages has never been the Savior for God's church. It's God who is. And that's why we have such high expectations even of political parties and so on today that only lead us to, on one hand, sometimes disappointment because of all the promises they can't keep. Or at other times, promising again that they'll do it and even deceiving us by those promises. It leads to hopelessness. Our hope is not in man. Our hope is in God. And when we look at these chapters, we're going to see, especially in the book of Daniel, that it's very critical of political or governments in general. Especially as we think of these kingdoms. But as we, as we look at this critical nature here in Daniel, we should... We should never let that do certain things to us. We need to have a firm foundation of the whole doctrine of government and politics in the Bible. And this, these chapters, or Daniel in general, should never lead us to disrespect government in any way. It should never lead us to disrespect any human leadership, 
whether it's government, church, parents, or even simply the dignity of men and women. As we find from the Bible that governments are God's good gift to us. As a matter of fact, even though we might have preferences to what kind of government we have, it's better to have any government than to have no government. Any kind of government is better than no government. Secondly, we need to also recognize that it's a very legitimate calling to serve in government, even though the kingdoms in, that are portrayed here are portrayed as evil kingdoms. It's still very legitimate for a Christian to serve in government offices. Daniel certainly did throughout his life, and he did so faithfully to both God and man. And thirdly, we need to always remember to honor and respect and pray for government leaders. Paul knew this very well, didn't he, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, as he tells Timothy, he exhorts him to prayer that it may be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. However, Paul is even telling Timothy there that you should not expect too much from the government. They're not our Savior, but make prayer for them. For the best that we could expect from our governments is, is to be able to allow us and provide really the environment for us to lead that quiet and peaceable life with godliness and reverence. When we expect too much from our government, it only shows us the worldliness that is in our heart. We have bought into being a kingdom of this world and that's exactly the disciples' problem in Jesus' day. What, what, when will the kingdom come to earth and do away with these Romans? That ferocious beast. Don't expect that, says Jesus. My kingdom is not of this world. And so we ultimately need saving from our own man-centered, world-centered type of thinking. And think more of God's kingdom. Because His kingdom is a kingdom that's an enduring kingdom. That's the second lesson we learn. His kingdom is an enduring kingdom. There is indeed a God in heaven. From Daniel chapter 2, we find that indeed that God in heaven gave Daniel the interpretation of the dream. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar comes to know this God in heaven and praises Him, and praises His enduring kingdom. And now Daniel looks, and Belshazzar has no idea again about who this God is. And yet, Daniel, you need to see this vision, says God. And he gives him this vision to show him, yes, indeed, there is still a God in heaven. And God in heaven will cause these kingdoms to rise, and He will smash them to ruins, for the Ancient of Days will come, and His courts will be open, and He will judge these kingdoms. And He will take his, the Son of Man and he will, re, he will give Him the kingdom, that, that stone that was cut out without hands that we saw in Daniel chapter 2 and struck the kingdoms of this earth and the beast of this world will dash them to pieces. For His is the kingdom and His is an everlasting kingdom. 
He will break the kingdom of Greece, we find in Daniel 8, verse 25, without any human hands. He is the one who's in control. And all of history and the world and all the disappointment and the delusion and the deceit from chapter 10 and 11, these things are not the way they seem to be. Because God is in control and He is ordaining everything to His glorious end as we find in Daniel chapter 12. And He has an enduring, everlasting kingdom. Our hope is not in man, church programs, political parties. Our hope is in God. And so therefore, let us lay up treasures in His kingdom. Spend time in His kingdom. Give resources into His kingdom. Focus on on learning and growing through His Word and the study of it and prayer and evangelism and so on. Because we recognize that the kingdom of God is not yet fully come. And so in this world, we have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. But one thing is certain, that God is and He will be ultimately victorious. You see, God's victory will come. And that's the third lesson we learn. Not only is His kingdom an enduring kingdom, but God's victory will come through even dark providences. And sometimes we ask ourselves, and we're filled with all kinds of questions. Why do, why do these things have to be? Why, do there, why does there have to be such difficulties? Why do these beasts have to come and persecute the saints of God and so on? Why couldn't God just do away with evil and grant deliverance right away? Let us never forget that this is God's story to tell. Not your story or not my story to tell. It's God's story to tell. And He's in sovereign control. And there's a reason that God doesn't just consume all evil and grant deliverance to His people. First reason I can think of is each time we kind of find here, even in Daniel 7, the time came. There was an ordained time when the cup, as it were, of God's indignation and wrath against sin and against evil was filled up. And then, and then, He takes them to court and judges. As a matter of fact, when Paul tells Timothy to pray for even all leaders and kings and so on, he says something very interesting afterwards. The purpose he gives is, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, because God's cup of His wrath is not yet full, as it was in with the Canaanites in the Old Testament when Israel was to inhabit the land, as it was in Babylonian captivity, as it would be at the end of time. God's purpose is for us to show that He desires that all men would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. It's a day of grace. It's a day of grace. Second reason God doesn't just do away with all this evil and grant deliverance is 
is for the upbuilding of the kingdom of God. In Daniel 11, verse 33, we read, And those of the people who understand, who know their God and understand their God and the hope that there is in their God, he says, he says they shall instruct many. They shall instruct many. They shall be building up this kingdom. And, and many of them will fall, fall by the sword, fall by flame, fall by captivity and plundering, and, and there won't be much help for them. But many shall, shall look and they shall be intrigued and, and come to a knowledge of this truth and be saved. You see, God uses these difficulties and these dark providences for the building up of His kingdom. Thirdly, He says, it's for the refining of God's people. Again, in Daniel 11, verse 35, we read, And some of those of understanding shall fall, and these, this will be the purpose of these dark providences. It shall refine them and purify them and make them white until the time of the end, because it's still for an appointed time. You see, sometimes, we, well, not sometimes, we always need to recognize that Jeremiah Jeremiah actually calls Babylon God's servant. God's servant. What was his servant to do? To purify the people of God. To take them into exile for their good. To bring them to repentance. To bring them back to Jerusalem eventually. To prepare the way. For the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that also why God calls in Isaiah Cyrus, who pronounced that edict of restoration, God's servant, and yet is shown as one of these beasts here in Daniel 7? What should our response be? Well, our response be to these dark providences that will need to happen to, for God's victory to come about, we need to think back to Solomon already in the temple, when he dedicated the temple. And he tells us, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That's what Israel needed to do. That's what Israel needed to hear in Babylon. And although Jeremiah calls Babylon God's servant, he has great lamentations to what's happening. He laments what's happening. Daniel here, as he witnesses these visions and thinks about what's all to come to pass and all these dark providences, he humbles himself before God. As a matter of fact, when he sees these visions, his thoughts are greatly troubled. His countenance is changed. In Daniel 8 we read, he fainted and was sick for days. In Daniel 9 we find him setting his face to the Lord God with fasting and sackcloth and ashes as he made his petitions known unto God. Maybe I can ask, what has our response been 
to challenging providences of God that He sent our way. In this past year and a half, there's probably been many different opinions on many matters. But there is one fundamental question that needs to be asked of us all. Has the last year and a half humbled us before our God? Have we asked the right questions? Who shook the sea? Why did He shake the sea? And how has it been used to the upbuilding of God's kingdom? How has it been used for our own purification and refining? Those are questions we need to ask, just as Daniel and Israel needed to ask. The fourth overarching theme is that despite these dark providences, And God's victory promised we can trust in God and His promises. We can trust in God and His promise deliverance. Just as in the book of Revelation you hear um, the Lord telling John, I'm coming quickly! I'm coming quickly! Just also here in Daniel 7, sprinkled throughout it, you have there is a short time and there will be full deliverance. Just a little while. And the wicked will be no more, and the meek shall inherit the earth, as we find in Psalm 37. Daniel 7, verse 26. You have a beautiful promise, don't you? But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion, that dominion of the, the, the fourth beast, to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. What a beautiful promise. The destruction of evildoers. And the saints shall inherit the earth to reign with Christ and to serve Him perfectly for all eternity. And I'll leave you with one more promise that you can trust in. Daniel 12, verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, until that day, we are called to serve Him in this world and to be a light in the midst of darkness. And that leaves me to the last overarching theme. To press on, serving God in this world. To press on. Notice what Daniel does after these visions. Verse 28. These visions greatly troubled his heart and his thoughts and his mind. His whole countenance has changed. You notice these words, but I kept the matter in my heart. He didn't go out and tell everyone. He didn't go out and make a big issue of this. He simply kept it in his heart and kept faithfully serving his God. Daniel 8, verse 27, he was faint and sick for days. But afterward, I arose, he said, and went about the king's business. You see, Daniel said, 
you know, all of these things are about to come to pass. I can't change God's plan in this world. But I can, I can continue to serve my God in this world. Because his expectation was in God, not the king. All the while he went about the king's business, he was also putting his hope, his expectation in God and his enduring kingdom. Daniel knew the secret. That it was, that it was not about some kind of great political revival. But that it begins with the revival in his heart and in the hearts of his neighbors. And it spreads when you continue to be that faithful witness of God in this world and through evangelism. He knew the secret in Daniel 11 verse 32. Those, those who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. He had witnessed the end goal that was in view. That at the end of time, there will be destruction and the ushering in of God's eternal kingdom. And he will also be part of that kingdom. And so he could press on daily serving his God. And the question for you and for me that's left in this morning is how will you stand? On that day. How will you stand when you appear before God? This past week, a young man, 18 years old, was crushed by an overhead door. How many of you as 18-year-olds, as 15-year-olds, as 20-year-olds and stand before God tomorrow. And for eternity. A young man just last night from Brantford, a young father, 36 years, dies of cancer. A young father's Many of you can stand before the Lord tomorrow or today and for eternity. Thankfully, through the testimony of faith, this 18-year-old and this 36-year-old could stand before God in and through the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Him? Do you trust Him? Do you have the promise that Daniel has at the end of the book of Daniel in verse 13 of chapter 12? But you, Daniel, do you have this promise in your heart? But you fill in the blank. Go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. That's our hope as a Christian. Is that your hope? 
That's the ultimate question. Ultimate question isn't whether you're a red ant or black ant. Whether you're the lion or the bear or the leopard or the ferocious beast. The question is, are you in God's kingdom by faith? And if you're not, he comes today in our very midst And he sets before us the kingdom of his son. He says, this is an enduring kingdom. Everything else will fade away. But my kingdom will endure forever and ever. Would you trust in him? Today and for eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the end of this message, preparing us to plunge into the chapters of Daniel and his apocalyptic literature, the revelation that you gave him, we ask, O Lord, that you would set the main things before us that they would be the plain things before us. That you are in sovereign control over all things. That our hope is in you alone and in your enduring kingdom. That we may press on in this world to serve you. We might know that identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. We might know our God to be strong and to carry out great exploits to your honor and to your glory. Lord, go with us throughout this day, keeping us from sin and temptation, bringing us back this afternoon again to worship you, So, Lord, we pray that you would also bless our brother student Jeff Overdoon, too, as he brings your word to us this morning, this afternoon. Bless him and his studies in the seminary and his dear family as well. May we rejoice in what you are doing also through our students, preparing preparing them also for gospel ministry. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.